Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The opening of the Sermon on the Mount, what we know as the Beatitudes. I don't know how well you know them. Most of us are acquainted with them as they go by, but do you know all of them? Could you recite all nine and in order and their substance? Not a bad thing to be practicing doing and thinking about even the flow of them, the ordering that is there. Opening up that heart before God, it sets the tone for the Sermon on the Mount that follows and the teaching of Jesus that is there. The Beatitudes, the Blesseds, the Blessed are these. There's at least one translation that renders it, Happy are those. And I know that in philosophical circles sometimes in talking about Aquinas and looking ahead to the beatific vision, there's the language of eternal happiness. In my mind, though, happiness is always much more bound up with what you feel. You know, you feel happy today. Well, that's good, but as easily that happiness drops and your mood changes and you don't feel so happy. I know that happiness can be more than that, but I like the idea of blessedness because it makes me think about well-being of the whole person. And that's something more than just the feelings that come and go. There's an attitude that is there. You know, beatitude is the blessedness, but it's worth hearing those words, be attitudes, thinking about how we are to be, how our lives are to be oriented, how they're to be focused. Because to me, when I start thinking about the attitudes, I immediately think of Philippians 2 and St. Paul at verse 5 saying, depending on your translation, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And sets out that way of the cross, that way of, of kenosis, the, the self-emptying of Christ. He who does not grasp as the first Adam did. Doesn't try to hold things to himself, but lets go of everything into the Father's hands. All that he is as the true Son is there in the Father's hands in his perfect will. And he lets go of, of anything else. Let's it all be there. There's in fact the, I had thought it was in the New International Version, but I only see it in the Good News translation that was Bible Society's translation, their choice of how to render those words. The attitude you should have is the one that Christ Jesus had. This having the same mind the verb in the Greek, it's that sense of the exercise of the mind, how you order things, how you think, the orientation of your thoughts and of your lives. I say again that things set the context for, for the Sermon on the Mount that follows, but set the context for the whole life and focus of Jesus. You think about as well Hebrews 12, where we're told to be encouraged by the saints who have gone before us and to know we've got that great cloud of witnesses around us. But in all of that, the focus is on Jesus and following him as he goes before, the, the pioneer and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The letting go all comes in that context of knowing into whose hands these things are going. The joy is of that eternal union with the Father. And the things of this world, beautiful as they are because this creation is God's work, fallen though it is, it is His created order. We're not to disdain the things of the body, but they're all to be given into His hands but all in the context of that final end that is ours, the the perfection of all things in God, in Jesus Christ. And so the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a poverty that's pointed to that is a good thing. Poverty all by itself is not necessarily a good thing. You know, if you are starving. You don't have enough food to eat. You don't have clothes and a a warm place to be accommodated in the midst of our winter. That's not a good thing. It's a very distracting thing. And a lot of people who are without anything of that sort are very much focused on themselves and survival. Of course, we know that you can have all those things and you can have them in a superabundance and be in exactly the same spot. We certainly know of people who have all the riches they could possibly want, have all the food that they want and whatever they want whenever they want it, can have the places and the clothing and have no joy in that, be very self-centered and have really nothing for all of that, have a strange kind of poverty that's not necessarily a good thing. There are many of us who are better off for having less because we don't get so caught up with things. And often those who have a relative degree of poverty actually find that when things come their way, they're quite quick to share with others. And often because they're aware of what it is not to have, so when they do, they look to the others who are struggling and want to share things. At the heart of all of that is the sense that we're not to hold on to these things, that the poverty the Lord is talking about is a poverty where we don't amass the riches in this world. We don't try to store our treasures here, but in fact, let go of them into the Lord's hands. Sometimes it's sort of the other side. It's not even just what we hold on to, but what has a hold on us. You always think about Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus reflected on that on different occasions, the rich man whose riches are all in this world. Lazarus, when he goes into eternity, has his name fulfilled, his name that means God is my help, Eleazar. The rich man is just still called the rich man, except all his riches were in this world, so it actually becomes mockery. All he knows in what is to come is the torment that comes of having all the lusts and the desires, but nothing left of this world to fulfill them. Blessed are the poor in spirit who know that nothing they hold on to in this world is to last and therefore entrust all that they do have to the Father. 
And so as you go on in the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus talking about investing the things we have here in the kingdom. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Often he says of those who have their stake in the things of this world that they already have their reward. Another occasion, what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Plain, where instead of being up on the mountain, Luke tells us that on another occasion he was on a level place. And he began to teach and to echo some of the same teaching. But there we get, blessed are you poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are rich now. For you have received your consolation, as it were. You've already received your reward. It was only in this world and it won't last. It passes away. The interesting thing, the word for consolation at that point will be the same word that gets picked up when he speaks about the blessing of those who mourn who will be consoled who will be comforted and the word that you might recognize is paraklesis and that comforting is a verb parakleo on the one hand that's quite literally the calling alongside its advocacy and paraklete Paraclete is, a, is an advocate, a legal term. But it's the term that Jesus, is, Jesus uses when he speaks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Saying that he's going away, but, but he will send another, another paraclete who will be with you, often translated as a helper, a comforter, a consoler. The things that comfort us in this world, it's a temporary comfort. What the rich man has here in this world is that which he holds on to here but doesn't last. Won't be an eternal comfort. The comfort that God gives to those who open up and let go of all things into His hands is the comfort of His Spirit. The comfort that comes of His living presence filling that emptiness within. True paraclesis. With that, the sense of the the beatitudes that go on from that point, that all speak of the of the loss and the letting go, but a little more deliberate sense, particularly in the beginning of the letting go. The mourning, we think about sadness over loss, but the loss of things that really do matter. I mean, you mourn for one that you've lost, a loved one, because there was one who filled that space. It leaves a hole. Not a bad thing to mourn for something that matters. If you watch the weeping of Jesus in the Scriptures, you find that He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the loss of His people that comes from their sin, from their turning from Him. It's a mourning over them, though the comfort will come. God will come to fill that space. Jesus, as He weeps over Jerusalem, prepares to go down into the city, go down to His people in order to raise them up in their brokenness, to fill them with His living presence, to draw them back in reconciling love. He weeps at the grave of Lazarus. He weeps for the loss of His his friends, but again, for the effect of, of sin and death at work in their lives, 
twisting and causing that pain and that separation. I believe he also weeps because humanly he feels the loss of a friend who is so dear. He sees the sorrow in the sisters and it touches within him. I do not think that he disdains our weeping over those we lose. Even though we will be comforted in him, in fact, it's in our opening up of that morning to the Lord that allows him to give us that comfort that is lasting. But as you go on within those Beatitudes, you think about the meekness that follows and the reminder that meekness is not just a state of being weak. The one who is meek is one who yields strength, who lets go of his strength. Jesus is the best example of meekness, the one who does have all the glory of heaven, who can call upon the Father for the twelve legions of angels when he is taken in the garden and goes to the cross, but who willingly lays down his life, gives us his strength that we might be raised up by his grace and his love. The one who is truly meek is the one who lets go of his or her strength in order to raise up those who are weak, to be a blessing to others. And you hear then further about the ways of reconciliation, of of the merciful, of the showing of mercy. Those who will receive in turn mercy, forgive in order that you may be forgiven. If you don't forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Those who are making peace. Not simply trying to settle everybody down, not even simply taking away weapons, but looking to see hearts reconciled, to see warring sides understand one another and be drawn together by that love of Christ, by the way of forgiveness, by real healing. And at the heart of that, the quest for the things of true righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are the ones who will be satisfied. But what's righteousness but the perfect will of the Father? Once again, remember Jesus so recently, we were recalling at His baptism, John who says, well, I ought to be baptized by you, but you're coming to me. Let it be so now in order to fulfill all righteousness. This is the Father's perfect will. This way needs to be open. But those who earnestly desire that will and give themselves to it, who let go of the things that they might grasp apart and follow the way of the Son, letting go of all things into the Father's hands, be raised up in Him. Jesus also gives the reminder, though, that to be identified with Him will always be the way, not just of His glory with the Father, but the way of the cross. The way of sharing in His suffering. If they hate Me, they will also hate you. If they rejected My Word, they will reject yours. To be identified with Him will be that way of hung, of suffering for righteousness' sake, of suffering for the Gospel, but the confidence that we do so in Christ and as we share in His sufferings, we share also in His glory. As we share in His death, we will also share in His resurrection and the life everlasting. 
The Sermon on the Mount, in fact, goes on to open up the law of God in the very heart of it, which is the Father's heart. The call to be as true sons and daughters of God. To follow the way of the true Son, to be made complete in Him. Key to all of this is letting the mind of Christ become our own. That the outlook and orientation of our lives would be His own. And in all of that context, interesting to hear the words of Zephaniah this morning. Speaking to a people about a way of humility and weakness. And a people that he wants to gather to himself. I don't know if you have Zephaniah in mind in his, where he fits in Israel's history. He's a prophet to Judah. I had mentioned with Isaiah recently that Isaiah spans several different kings and he he starts at Uzziah's death and moves on through to Hezekiah. He's got some pretty rough territory to cover, but Hezekiah is a reforming king and there's a hopeful ending to Isaiah's prophecies. When you get to Zephaniah, you're a couple of generations further along. You're to the grandson. Following Hezekiah has been Manasseh, the wickedest of Judah's kings, even though at the end of his life there is some repentance. His son Ammon follows him and he picks up where his father had left off before the repentance. But he's deposed and his son Josiah is put on the throne, the boy king. A boy who has a heart after the Lord whose heart is convicted when he sees how far wrong his people have gone. The law is rediscovered and read before him, and he truly mourns over his people, over their state before God, and he's told that he will be comforted, that there will be blessing in his day, even though the die is cast and things will not go well in the generations that follow but a heart that's rent before God, that is open to him. Zephaniah will run through his years of being on the throne. The last part of Zephaniah's prophecies will actually pick up afterwards where things begin to fall again. But he will know that hope that is in God. He will know that in that way of meekness and turning and humility, that There can be a people that is described as being hidden in the day of God's wrath. Not hidden from God. But if you think of St. Paul's words in Colossians 3, hidden in God. Where Paul says, you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Those who in fact lay hold of that attitude and turn with their lives to the Lord who embrace that way of the poverty of spirit whereby we let go of our lives into his hands. We let our lives be lived out in the context of an investment in eternity, of knowing that we are to grow up as sons and daughters of God in the likeness of the true Son of God, that we will know ourselves hidden from a wrath that is the righteous wrath of God to purge the things of wickedness. That the fire that comes will in fact be in us. The fire that sets us free, that 
renews us, refines us in the divine image. It draws us closer to God. It draws us more deeply into His heart. We all need the consolation of the One who is our paraclete, our comforter, our helper. Even the Spirit of God, the gift that He gives, the earnest, the down payment of that kingdom that He pours out into us in our baptism into Jesus. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Lay hold of eternal life in him.